words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all eternity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuit, the wind returns, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, and man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. If there are things of which it is said, see, this is new, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who will come after. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word, as we have repeatedly said. Thank you. That we have it in our language and we're mindful of those who still lack it in theirs. And we pray that you would send out laborers into the harvest field, especially to immerse with people groups so that all may know what Christ has done for us. Father, we pray that as we come to our text, that as always, we would not just be informed, but transformed by what we see in your word. And we pray not just for our time in the word, but Father, for our sister churches across our city as we did in our elder time before this, as we prayed specifically for our pastor brothers by name. Father, we pray that you would empower them by your spirit to preach your word clearly and that it would be for the good of your people and for your glory. Father, we pray now that you would move, give us ears to hear your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we're excited, uh, especially for our guests. If you're here, we're always excited to have our members back. We consider it. Uh, you know, if someone comes once, it's always grace. If someone comes more than once, it's just grace upon grace. And so we are grateful as we start our series today in Ecclesiastes. Our typical pattern is to preach through books of the Bible, and then we switch testaments and even genres in those. So, for instance, when we uh, were in the New Testament last fall, and then through Easter, we walked through the Gospel of Mark. When we go back to the New Testament, we'll be somewhere besides a gospel. Matter of fact, uh, we will be also somewhere besides a non-Pauline epistle, meaning a letter that Paul's written, because the last times we've been in the New Testament, we've covered uh, some of those um, sections. As we come to the Old Testament, uh, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes, wisdom literature, uh, because it's been a while since we've been here. We did a series uh, several years ago through Proverbs, uh, called the way of wisdom but it, since then we've we've covered exodus we've covered esther we've covered ezekiel actually i guess almost all the e-words we need to get ezra now uh, but here we are with ecclesiastes so yeah we'll just be lacking ezra uh, and so should we come back around to the history books then we'll do that but as we shared that we were going to be walking through ecclesiastes james underwood actually emailed me and shared a little bit about how God used the book of Ecclesiastes in his life. So I've asked him to come and share with us now, uh, because for many of you, uh, maybe the first time you've found Ecclesiastes, uh, but for others of us, maybe God's used it in incredible ways. And so James, come share with us how God's used this text in your life, brother. So let me back up just a little bit and tell you how I 
wrestling with that at that moment of, what, what do I do? What do I do? Oh, thanks be to God for Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is what I have, I have lived through. And so that is, that is uh, it's not, again, that, that's the, uh, the, the fertile ground in which the gospel grows. It's this recognition of who God is and who we are. And I love how in Mark, I can't remember if it was Landon or Matthew the other day that was talking about how every time the demons saw Jesus, they knew who he was. A lot of other people, they, they, you know, they, they were stupid. Uh, the, the demons at least said, you know, you're God, we're not, and that terrified us. And, you know, that, that is a huge part of this of this, uh, of this book of Ecclesiastes. Is, is, uh, and I think part of the reason that we might have a hard time finding it, like Landon mentioned, is it's not, you're not going to find this in sicknesses for the soul. You're not going to see this, uh, you know, um, probably from a, uh, a Christian movie, but it's, man, it's the truth. And it, it, is, it is incredibly sad, it is incredibly depressing if you take it outside of Christ's transformational power, this fact that I, I am nothing. But it, it's, it's a recognition of who we really are, of, of who man is, for all its sin and falling short of the glory of God. That whether it's our sin, whether it's our weaknesses, whether it's the fallen world that we live in, that ultimately I can't do it. Pray for James. Many of you know he cares uh, for his mom well and even his stepfather and his father. And uh, we want to pray, thank God for delivering James through this word, and then pray that his grace would be evident to James as he continues to minister even to his own family and others. Father, thank you for this testimony. Thank you for how you've used your spirit and your word in James's life, even in Ecclesiastes. And Father, I do pray for the grace to be clear to him and through him. As he does seek to care for his mom and his stepfather and his father, and as he strives to be a faithful husband and a father while still trying to be a, a faithful son, I pray that you would use him with those who he has the opportunity to teach each week, and Father, that uh, above all, you would fill him with your love and joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks, James. I do want to say a word because too often uh, in congregations we don't talk about things such as depression or even uh, suicidal thoughts. And I want to say on behalf of our elders, if you ever struggle with either of those, we want to talk to you. Don't ever be ashamed uh, to share those so that we could come alongside you. This is, a, this is a safe place not to be perfect. This is a safe place not to have it all together. We clearly point to Christ as the only one who does that. And so just with James noting that, I know that James may not be alone in that, and so we want to say as elders, any way that we can come alongside you. And James, what a great word. You're right. Yes, too often folks read Ecclesiastes and they're depressed. You read Ecclesiastes and we're delivered. So we're grateful for that. As we come to Ecclesiastes, there are a couple questions we need to ask. And so anytime you jump into a book series, uh, you want to do a little bit of an overview. So on the front page of your notes, hopefully you got those when you walked in, we'll talk about what do we need to know about Ecclesiastes just in general? James has already ruined the end for us, so I don't know what we're going to do to Labor Day. Mr. Jim actually offered a one-sentence summary of it in our elder room, and I said, that's right, Mr. Jim. I just have to squeeze that into 60 minutes. So uh, 
don't be panicked. It won't be 60. It'll probably be 70. And we got lunch. So we, uh, what do we need to know? Because uh, anytime you jump into the Bible, you need to ask what type of literature, what type of genre is, and where are we in God's story of redemptive history? And the wisdom books are a little bit different uh, as they, they are true for every age. And, and they give us pictures really of individual believers and not just the community. But here, here's some things, just so you know, here's what some other people have said about Ecclesiastes. Some say it's the truest of all books. And I, I think they would mean by that realist or most transparent uh, because we would affirm that actually all the Bible books are true. But some would say it's very real and raw. Another says it's the strangest book in the Bible. And then my particular favorite, Bartholomew, says Ecclesiastes is a lot like an octopus. You ever thought about that? I haven't. But he says, I don't tend to think about Bible books in relation to animals. But he says Ecclesiastes is a lot like an octopus. Just when you think you have all the tentacles under control, that is, you've understood the book, there's one waving about in the air. Hey, over here, right? Uh, at the top of your notes I have written, Ecclesiastes is a book in which the author raises more questions than he answers. Some of his questions are going to be answered in other places in the Old Testament. Some of them will only find their answers in the New Testament. And then, as you and I already know very well, some questions will only have answers clearly in heaven and in eternity. Uh, because the, the second verse says this in the ESV, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, because this is how the book starts, the very first opening. It doesn't even let you sort of break into it and ease. He just declares from the beginning, almost shouting, uh, vanity, it's all meaningless, it's all futile, right? You're like, oh, what else could I read? Uh, I, I love that someone says, the book starts out low and gets worse. <laughs> so, I hope you're all excited as we walk through this now. What type of literature is Ecclesiastes? We've said before that it's wisdom. The wisdom literature includes Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and one more. What is it? Anyone know? Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, however you want to call that. Uh, out of those, Psalms and Proverbs probably get the most attention from people. When they say, hey, let, what, what, what can I read every day and feed my soul? Very few turn to Ecclesiastes, right? Most time we go to Psalms, we may do a proverb of a day, or if you've read Don Whitney's book, Praying Through the Bible, he uses Psalms as a portion of that. Um, most people don't turn to Job and Ecclesiastes because they seem too depressing, and most people don't turn to Song of Solomon because it seems too, well, you can talk about it later or not. And so all that to say, Ecclesiastes is not usually the first place people turn in the Bible, and nor even in the wisdom literature is it generally top three. It's, it's probably four or five, even in its own rank. Some features of Ecclesiastes is that like Job and Proverbs, the preacher of Ecclesiastes doesn't require those who listen to know a whole lot about the Bible. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. One has noted that in Ecclesiastes, there's no mention of Abraham. There's no mention of Moses or David or the coming Messiah or the history of Israel. That's part of why it's a, a different type of genre and it has every bit of poetry you could want in it. But what I do want to help you sort of grasp is Ecclesiastes, in one way, is written through the lens of evangelism or apologetics, offering a, a defense for the faith. And that's where I've put a, a summary. I love what Zach Eswine said. The preacher, because in verse 1, look, it says the words of the preacher, or the word there is koheleth, can mean preacher, it can mean teacher. But he says this preacher is not an old-school evangelist from the American South or Midwest. He doesn't start with a biblical text and exposit it like we will do. We're going to walk through Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11 in an expositional manner. That's not what he does. He's going to start with creation. And I put a summary there in your notes. The preacher in Ecclesiastes is a fellow human being interrogating the world and our experience. He recognizes the limits of our knowledge and the real questions that nag us. In this light, he does not give voice to the most trite of human objections about God and the world. Rather, he gives voice to the true human angst. Whether we believe or not, as human beings, we can access Ecclesiastes and hear our questions and our culture's answers on the preacher's tongue. We feel our lament in his pain. We see our own tantrums in his frustrations. We touch our own longings as he cries out with his. The preacher gives language to our ache, poetry for our dreams, and exclamation for our search. 
He resists anything trite, pretentious, sentimental, or dishonest. By this means, the God who inspired this text shows us his empathy and his profound understanding of our plight and all of its confusing, emotional, tragic, and maddening forms. Think about when Paul went to Mars Hill. He did not start with a scripture text. He would if he was in the synagogue with those who knew the scripture. But when he went to Mars Hill, he started with something that they knew. I saw today in your city a statue that was to the unknown God. Let me tell you about him. He starts with things that they see. That's exactly what's happening in Ecclesiastes. He's not starting with Moses. He's not starting with Abraham. He's starting with, you know, the world keeps spinning. You know, the rivers, they keep flowing. He, he starts because he's getting to something. I put another summary there for you by Eaton. Ecclesiastes is an apologetic sermon, like an essay in apologetics. It defends a life of faith and a generous God by pointing to the grimness of the alternative. I hope this helps us because many of us, as we, uh, we had a class and would love for all of you, our Wednesday night equipping classes are going on. You can find those on our website. But we recently had one about gospel conversations. And one of the things that SY notes, uh, again there in your notes, is that many of us have little idea of how to jettison our religious language and garb and to humble ourselves in creaturely ways as we sweat together with our neighbors on this parched earth. The, what he's meaning there is we don't know how to get rid of the Jesus talk to talk to people about Jesus. We don't, we don't know how to, to just meet them where they are with those who aren't where we are in God's grace. So he says, the preacher shows us how. From him we learn to listen, to represent without spin how people think, feel, and act. To admit that we ourselves must weather the same conditions and that we too long to recover for ourselves a credible and honest answer to what troubles us. And then the last word there for you is that O'Donnell says, the best way to read Ecclesiastes is as God's wisdom literature with a unified message that makes better sense in light of the crucified, risen, and returning Christ. That this is the way that we want to approach Ecclesiastes because we don't just have Ecclesiastes. God has graced us to have the rest of the story. And so we can read this in light of those things. What then is Ecclesiastes about? If you'll open, if you have your word there, you can see in, in chapter 1, verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. If you hold your place there and go to chapter 12, verse 8, chapter 12, verse 8, he repeats again, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. When you study in the, in the New Testament, and it's not different for the Old Testament either, but when you have things that are repeated, uh, such as in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of what? heaven, right? And then you get to uh, the end of that, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then we know that those Beatitudes are talking about the kingdom of heaven. It is a parenthesis. And it helps us know whatever is in between there is explaining to us what it's like in the kingdom of heaven. At the beginning of Ecclesiastes and the end of Ecclesiastes, he says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. So that in between, he's going to lay out his argument then for why it is. Why is everything vain, futile, fleeting, a mere breath? And so the book will begin, going back to chapter 1 now, the book begins with a brief introduction. And that's what we're going to cover today. And even in this introduction, these first 11 verses, he's going to give you highlights or lowlights, depending on your view, of what's to come in this book. And then he ends with a little prologue. But everything else is his monologue of why uh, all these things fail to satisfy or why they're meaningless. If Proverbs is for people who want to have wisdom and have success, Ecclesiastes is for those who already have it and have found it wanting. If, uh, if Job learned about the vanity of the world by losing all of it, then in Ecclesiastes, we learn about the vanity of the world by having all of it. And those are the lens in which it's there. So for those who've gotten what they wanted or what they thought they wanted and then found it wanting. When I was younger, growing up, and first beginning to preach, there were two events in particular that I, I wanted to be able to preach one day if the Lord would grace me with those. One was the National Collegiate Week out at Glorieta, New Mexico. And then the other was just the Youth Evangelism Conference in Louisiana. I, I grew up going to that. And by the time I was uh, out of my mid-20s, I'd already preached both of those events multiple times. And then I remember thinking, I should have set some higher goals and some higher dreams. The Lord in His grace bringing those opportunities about. 
The other story I often tell is that after preaching in, at the Youth Evangelism Conference in Louisiana to an arena full of students, we were at Applebee's uh, after that, eating with Tara, and maybe Arabella was born. She would have been real little at that point. And, and so we um, were eating, and some of the students happened to come to that Applebee's, and they kept coming to my table wanting my autograph, right? And then the waitress comes to the table and she says, I've been watching. She said, I've been racking my brain. I guess I should recognize you, but I don't at all. <laughs> and I just said, I am only famous in one room in this city. And that fame is fading already. <laughs> so uh, vanity, vanity. It's all vanity is what he's getting to. Let me give you, because sometimes I learn best from uh, visual pictures. Let me give you another picture of Ecclesiastes. I need one adult volunteer because we're going to use fire. Grateful Kathy's here in case this goes horribly wrong. Uh, any adult volunteers? You don't have to touch it. Any adult volunteers here? Come on, Efren. Good. Come on, man. Way to go, members. Let our guest volunteer. <laughs> Efren, we're happy you're here. Members are really glad. All right, Efren, we're going to go through a couple things. I promise, well, I promise to try not to burn you. I'm going to ask you a series of questions. We'll use a couple matches if it works, all right? First thing I want you to do is just, we'll, we will, I will light it, and I'm going to blow it out, and I want you to watch for the smoke, and I want you to tell me how long you think it lasts afterward, okay? Be real quick. Oh, look at that. All right, you ready? Big one. It's a chain smoker. All right. How long did you think that lasted? About 11 seconds. All right. I was counting Mississippi, so <laughs> I got to like two of them because I was like, is it two S's or two P's or four? All right. So 11 seconds. All right. Was the smoke temporary or permanent? It dissipated. It dissipated. Good. Good word. I love it. You can still smell it. So you can st yeah, that's the next one. Good. So it did dissipate it. It, it. it was not permanent. It was just temporary. All right. Let's do another one. All right, now I want you to uh, watch the smoke again. All right, you got it? Can you see the smoke? Yes, sir. Can you smell the smoke? Yes, sir. Would you say the smoke is real? Yes, sir. It is real. All right, good. Would you say that that smoke has left a permanent impact, though, on you? Are you forever changed by that smoke? Not forever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Matt can talk to you about other smoke that might do that, but, <laughs> but not, not that. You're not permanently impacted by that, right? Good. Would you say that that smoke has left a lasting impression on this room? Maybe. No, I was they, talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> they think I'm smoking something at this point, so <laughs> perhaps not. All right, one more. One more that will last. I want you, when I like this, I'll blow it out, and then when I blow it out, I want you to try to grab some of the smoke and hold on to that smoke for as long as you can. All right? Don't grab the fire. All right? <laughs> we didn't do a waiver. Where's Bryant? We didn't do a waiver. Let's see. All right. Y'all like my canister? I was like, Tara, I need matches. She's like, use these. They have matadors on them killing a bull. So, all right, ready? Try to grab it. Hold on to it as long as you can grab it, man. You got it? Grab it. All right, show us in your hand what you got. All right, a little bit, a little bit of it. Good. Was it easy to grab? Could you hold on to it? No, not at all. Give that for my head. He, he was a good, willing participant. When the author says in verse 2, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, it can mean this as well. Merest of breaths, merest of breaths, everything is a breath. The smoke from the match was real. It doesn't mean that our lives aren't, aren't real and the things that we do, they are real. But what of them have lasting impacts? What of them... Uh, can be grasped and held on to forever. One of them can uh, last longer uh, even than we would desire. They, they go quickly. They're temporary. And so Ecclesiastes is this visual reminder that life and the things of life, ultimately you cannot grasp them and hold on to them. They are real. You can smell them. You can hear them. But you can't hold them forever. And this is what he's communicating. And so Gibson has said the book of Ecclesiastes is a meditation on what it means for our lives to be like a whisper spoken in the wind. Here one minute and carried away forever the next. Ecclesiastes is about how life seems to elude our grasp in terms of lasting significance. I miss Tara's grandfather, Papa. I never really had a grandfather that I knew. I met my, one of my biological grandfathers 
only one time and then talk to him on the phone uh, call one other time. So no lasting impact uh, from him. Tara's grandfather was the only grandfather I really had and loved Papa. Luther Millsaps, he was here in, in Tupelo and he gave his life uh, so often caring for, for Tara. But Papa used to always say, because the Moffats had a dog named Frenchie, who was a little chihuahua that lived ever. Matter of fact, the first time I came to visit Tara's parents, that little chihuahua came all the way upstairs where I was staying and scratched on the door until I left that dog in my room. Uh, that dog lived to be about 42. And then <coughs> Nene, our dog, who we call an immortal one because she's about 15, uh, Papa would always say these dogs that live inside and have it better than some people across the globe, he would always look at them when they would bark for food and he'd say, you're just a dog. You are just a dog. He would say it over and over at any time he would see him. Papa, Papa wasn't going to be tender with him, that's for sure. He would put the dog in its place. I am a human and you are a dog. What the book of Ecclesiastes is reminding all of us is you're just a human. You are not God. You are just human and that's what you are and there's some things true for all of us whether we are christians and human or whether we are non-christians and human there are things that are true of all of us across the board and so what do we need to know now on the back of your notes should be ecclesiastes 1 1 through 11 what do we need to know now specifically about this text as we just start our series together in ecclesiastes and as we've already said, this is the intro, and I put a passage in the sentence, actually, sorry, the very, very top of the other side, uh, that just says this, without Jesus, everything is meaningless because the gain we seek does not exist under the sun. That's a good summary of the whole book, but it's also a good summary of the first 11 verses, that without Jesus, every single thing we do is meaningless because there's no gain in it that you can hold on to forever these things that are under the sun. I loved what another writer said. He says, looking under the sun for gain by our toil is like trying to buy medicine in a shoe store. He said, look, shoe store has good things, but it doesn't have medicine. It doesn't have what you're ultimately searching for. If you're searching for medicine, you can't find it there. And I love what Sidney Gradena says, fear God in order to turn a vain, empty life into a meaningful life which will enjoy God's gifts. So as you see in your notes, he, he makes a, an assertion, everything is meaningless, and then he's going to use the rest of 1 through 11 to explain why. Here's why. So everything, all that is under heaven, and, he's, and that bothers us because we who've grown up in church, we want to say there's some things that aren't meaningless, right? Caring for your spouse, that's not meaningless, right? Being a good parent, that's not meaningless. Loving your neighbor, that's not meaningless, right? We, we want to know, except for he uses this word, all. Everything, all of it is vanity, all that's under heaven. And, and, and he asked the question in verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That's what he's trying to see. And as he says that all is meaningless, the answer is there. Why is it meaningless? Because the gain we see does not exist under the sun. And this is the key question in the opening section of the book. And as everything follows through, the answer is going to be, what, what is gained by the toil of which we took? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing is ultimately gained through all of these things. By gain, he means something left over. How many of you hope at the end of the month there's something left over in the checking account? All right? That's some gain. All right? Uh, we hope that at the end of our life that there's some surplus, not just financially, but something left over that we can give to our children. What's the lasting effort? Let's consider the phrase under the sun because you're going to see it through all throughout the book. You'll see it multiple times. And what do we mean? What does he mean by life under the sun? And what he means is life as we experience it in a fallen and cursed world by God. That we're no longer in Eden. Eden changed things about the world in which we live. And here we live in a cursed world. It comes with significant challenges. They're often hard to understand. Have you ever found some life situations that were difficult to understand? It's what it means to be under the sun. There can be great difficulty in discovering meaningful and significant life. That's why there's so many books. About what does it mean? What's the point of life? What are we searching for? And so many, at least secular, answers for that. And there are things we've certainly already learned that we neither can control or figure, figure out all the details of. We may discern difficulty with difficulty the timing of right things 
but then being able to follow through or to do them, it becomes difficult in our life. Whether we move or stay, spend or save, nothing and no one can make our lives pay off or yield the return for which we hope. And what you need to know about under the sun is, in Scripture, it is a marker of time, and the phrase refers to now rather than just there. He's not talking about just location, but he's also talking about when. It's a way of saying that as long as earth lasts, in this period of time, this is how things are. This side of eternity, is life, uh, life is like a breath. We do the same things over and over again, then we die, only to be followed by our children who will do the same things in the same way and then meet the same end. That this is what it means under the sun, and that's why everything is meaningless, because if all we have is to toil here in this fallen world, nothing is going to change that, and that's our next truth. Why is it that we cannot gain as we toil on the sun? And it's because nothing changes. Look at verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes but the earth remains forever. I love what Zach Eswine pointed out. He says, we've never heard of almost everyone who's ever lived. Have you ever thought about that? We've never heard of almost everyone who's ever lived. Most of those we have heard of, we don't even personally know. Even the folks that you tweet or Instagram or Facebook, you don't know all of them, really. Some of them you've never even met in real life, right? I always know when we go to a conference and we see someone following Twitter, we're like, oh, there's that bro. But we don't go up and say, hey, you know? Because I don't know it, right? You may have interacted, but you don't know them. And even those few who go down in history, like Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer, and others, those who we study thoroughly in pursuit of advanced degrees, we don't even know them completely. Before you and I were born, the earth had spun many times. And on the day you die, unless the Lord says stop, the earth will continue to spin many times. Let me break something to you. When you were born and when you die, the earth isn't going to be rocked by it. Because the world doesn't revolve around you. You are not the center of the universe. How many of you as parents have found you've had to help children learn that lesson? Right? You're not even the center of this house. Right? Maybe Pluto that used to be a planet, but not this house. Right? You've had to teach them. My wife has helped me learn that lesson. Right? Uh, slow learning. So that we think this. But yet he says... A generation goes, a generation comes, but earth, still spinning, still rolling around. What do we leave behind? Earth, still spinning. That's what you leave behind. You're just in a box, your body, going around with it, right? Thanks for the rhyme. We do believe in afterlife here. We'll talk about heaven. We don't mean that, but your body, still going around, right? I love, as Gibson says, when we consider the brevity of our lives set against the millennia of the earth, we know that what the preacher says is true, except... We pretend it isn't, don't we? we pretend, don't we pretend someone else is going to get cancer but not us? Don't we pretend something uh, tragic is going to happen but not us? And, and that we, we can make a difference in the world, accomplish things of lasting significance, and that's why we go to work each day. It's also why we have a midlife crisis when we look back and see that who we are and what we've done doesn't seem to amount to very much. My dad died at 58. I decided to have my midlife crisis early. <laughs> case I didn't get to enjoy it and I, if I were completely transparent I think when I turned 40 I'm 41 I think for 40 and 41 I've been assessing this in my life what's it all amounting to what are the degrees on the wall mean what what are books that are published even mean what what what's the significance of it you and I will come and go but the sun the wind the sea they will still be here and that's what he gets to next look in verse 5 6 and 7 the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. It doesn't change. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. So it's not just now that things don't change. The, the wind keeps blowing and the sun keeps actually standing there. We go around it, but, and then the water keeps rolling. But it's not just that they don't change. The reason that there's no gain in all this toil is because none of these things will satisfy. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 7. All streams run to the sea, but the sea isn't full. Can't get enough. It can't get enough. It's there, right? And to the place where the streams flow, there they will flow again. Everything goes round and round, and it comes and goes, comes, and it's this cycle. Nothing changes. Nothing is satisfied. How many of you ever cleaned dishes only to find there were more dishes later on? Ever, ever been there? Or have you ever washed all the clothes and then realized all six of you in your house had on clothes? 
He was so excited because you caught up from the laundry only to be like, there's dirty laundry before we even go to bed tonight. You're just like, this is depressing, right? And there are more bills. How many of you found bills keep coming every month? They, they keep sending them in the, into your mailbox or your email, right? Or more emails, more haircuts. Uh, now, our favorite time of year, there's more grass to mow, right? That stuff just keeps going. I love October and November. I'm like, yes, yeah, stay down, right? <laughs> but you come out again for like eight months, right? That stuff in January is like, big boo, right? Clover and toiling and weeds. So with the sun, wind, and the sea, maybe you haven't pondered this. Did you know that the same sun we look at is the same sun Adam and Eve looked at? It's the same one they looked at. I remember my first time in Africa, in Uganda, at the headwaters of the Nile there in Jinja. And I was overcome thinking about this was once turned to blood. This is the very same Nile that Moses dealt with still flowing still streaming Moses not here long gone but still at now I looked at the leaves that are coming out on the, and the oaks in our front yard and I, I admit I was like you're going to fall soon and I hate you but I knew it they just keep doing what they're doing and these cycles don't satisfy look at what he goes to now he moves from sun wind and sea and he says this in verse 8 all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the Ill ear, Ill, ear filled with hearing. We can't see enough. We always want to see more. We can't hear enough. We always want to hear more. And we can't say enough. We have a good friend, some of our good friends in Baton Rouge, that always talks about Tara having a word count. And if Tara and his wife haven't talked to him while he knows Tara's word count's going to be way up. And we, we use that. We can't say enough. We can't hear enough. We can't see enough. And as one of those great uh, theological bands used to say, I can't get no, you heathens. How do you know that song? How do you know that, right? But I try, and I try, and I try, and I Try. Yeah, good. All right. So we try, but I can't get it. And then these other deep lyrics, which I'm glad we don't sing. When I'm driving in my car and the man come on the radio, it's not a lesson in great English, children. He's telling me more and more about some useless information supposed to fire my imagination. But I can't get no, oh, no, 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 hey, hey, hey. Those are always good lyrics, right? When you add O's and hey's, man, that's the stuff, right? It says, that's what I say. That's part of the problem, right? You use, he's like, it doesn't matter how many of these words I use, a lot of O's and A's. I can't say enough of them. I can't hear enough of them. I can't sing it. I can't do it. I remember one night, uh, probably two years ago, I was sitting in uh, one of the girls. Uh, it was probably a nutcracker a ballet recital at the Performing Arts Center there at Tupelo High School. And I was most likely avoiding looking at men on stage at that time. But I was struck by the cyclical patterns with both my family and our faith family. We, we start school, and then we have swim and cheer. We move to nutcracker tryouts. And then each year, the girls actually progress just in their roles. So if you're paying attention when your girls are smallest, you can actually see what they'll be when they're oldest if they persevere. It's no mystery. They move up in these different categories, poly Chanel, and move through to a party boys and party girls, all exciting for me. We move to soccer, and then Thanksgiving, then Nutcracker comes itself, then basketball, then spring ballet practices, then tennis, then soccer again, then spring ballet, then baseball, now the May recital, then camps in summer, then it starts over. But it's the same for our faith family. We kick off life groups in, in August, and we try for family campouts. We have October outreaches. We have our Thanksgiving celebration. We have our candlelight Christmas Eve service, just like Jesus told us to. We have Disciple Now. We, we start life groups again in January. We have our Passion Week lunch, and we celebrate Christ's death and resurrection. We honor graduates. We honor moms. We stop life groups. We honor dads. We have camps, and on the first Sunday of all those months, we have the Lord's Supper. And every Sunday, we have announcements, songs, prayer, preaching, and giving. And it all starts over and over. So it's not just out there. It's in our life. We see it. And I remember being struck with we just do the same things at the same time of year every year and if this is all there is man it stinks if it's all there is is it any meaning to it and so what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying is that at the end of the day human beings gain nothing from all their toil because 
There's no surplus to be had because we can't be satisfied. We can't get enough. There's no gain because everything is cyclical. It keeps coming and none of it satisfies. We keep waiting for a change in our circumstances that will make us happy. How many of you, when you were growing up, just thought, if I can get out of this house from my parents, then it's going to be better. And I can get to college and, and move on. And then when you, you got to college, maybe you thought, I can't wait to get out of these boring classes and get to a job that I love to go to every day. I wake up ready to go to that job. And then when you got that job, you're like, ugh. When's the holidays? When's the weekend? And then you think, well, I can't wait to get married and have children. And then it's going to be awesome. And then you get married and have children. And you're like, man, I wish I was back in my parents' house sleeping late <laughs> on Saturdays. And we, we find that ultimately it's not about circumstances changing. You'd say, man, it's going to be different. No, listen to the author of Ecclesiastes. It will never be different. It will never be different. These things go round and round and they don't satisfy Another reason that there's no gain is because nothing is new. Look at what he says in verse 9 and 10. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it said, see, this is new. It's been already in the ages before us. There's nothing new that we can actually discover. And, and folks would say, well, we've made all kinds of technological strides. I love what Alistair Begg said is, yeah. We put a man on the moon, and all he had to do there was to stare back at Earth, all right? So that we can make all these events, but nothing ultimately is new. I would interject, I do think you never know what you're going to get out of a conversation with Mr. Tommy Lee. Matter of fact, before, right before we even started this, one of our elders, uh, Mr. Tommy said, if you want to get people's attention, just put your leg up on, on your pant and push your shock, sock down below your ankle until they ask you why. You never know what you're going to get with Mr. Tommy. <laughs> it's always new. That's why Miss Jenny's so full of life. It's all discovery with her. She never knows what the morning holds with him. But you, you and I know, if we make it with uh, Elon Musk to Mars, are we going to be satisfied with Mars? No, we're going we're to want to go on to the Milky Way and to Butterfingers and to Nestle Crunch. We're going to want to keep, we're going to keep going on, right? And so he says, the reason that uh, it's this way is because no matter what comes, it won't be different. It won't be new. There's not some discovery that we've yet to make that's going to change all of this. If this is all there is, and you're working for gain, and you're working hard, when you're gone, the earth will keep spinning, the water will keep flowing, and there won't be anything different about any of those things. Lastly, he says, the reason why there's no gain and it's all meaningless is because we all die and we're forgotten. We all die and we're forgotten. He says in verse 11, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Exodus 1.8 says a new king who didn't know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Or as you move into the book of Judges, just after Joshua that we looked at last week, it says that when that whole generation was gathered that knew about Joshua and the things of the Lord, it says after them another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. Many of us not only didn't meet, but we don't even remember our great-great-grandparents. They were certainly integral in us being here, but we didn't meet them and we don't know them unless you spend all your time on the Ancestry Tree website and you're different, but... I, I thought about uh, Dr. Danny Dickey, who retired in March from doing orthodontics for years in, in our city. And that's who Arabella used, his neighbor with my in-laws. He retired, but he will be replaced. After all those years pulling out of that parking lot and, and digging in people's mouths, which I could not do, after the end of it, you get a plaque, and then the next day someone steps into your office. Next day, they, they fill it up there, right? And there's nothing new. He says, look, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance. You, can, you gain nothing from grinding your fingers to the bone because the world will go on impervious to what you've done. And it's not just that it won't remember you. It's not going to remember your kids. I know all of you think my kids are special. They're awesome. And he says, even those that aren't here yet, no one's going to remember them. Uh, when we were driving to, together for the gospel, 
I was trying to count the number of families who were at Trace Crossing when I first arrived that are still here, and we could come to about 12. And, of course, with the, the Gosses, most of you know the Gosses are going to be transitioning to Atlanta. We're going to pray for them next week. We're going to be down to 11 of those families. One day, no one will know any of us from Trace. I think about my home church all the time and my high school, two places that were pretty significant in my life, and at least for a short time, I had some small measure of significance, and now, not enough, you know. They would, they would not know I was there or had been there at all. And in case you think you're different, turn to chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. This is what he writes. I saw there's more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. So he says, look, there is some benefit in wisdom, but the wise die just like the fool, and both are forgotten. And if you want to progress, it gets worse for you, because in chapter 3 he says, we meet the same end as our pets. There's no difference in us dying and pets dying. Of course, all dogs go to heaven. That's immediate. But just kidding, children. Let your, children, let your parents unpack that theologically later. But that their animals die and we die. I read this week about when Billy, Billy Graham received an award in the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol building. And during his acceptance speech, he spoke of walking down the halls and seeing all the statues of those who were there. And he asked himself, what do they all have in common? It wasn't just that they were Americans or they had done great things for our country. His answer was, they're all dead. And you and I will soon be there. And he is, even now. And so why is everything meaningless? Because under the sun, there's nothing that can be gained no matter how hard you work because nothing changes, nothing satisfies, nothing is new, and we all die and forgotten. So that's all there is. It's unbelievably depressing. But the author, the preacher here is starting because as we said, it's, it's an apologetic. He's going to get to at the end. But he's starting where many around him are. And in our world, don't we see that? Don't we see people striving for significance? They want to know even if they're not known everywhere, they're at least known in your office. Or they've accomplished something, something great or... If they can just get this promotion or they can just get that, don't we see it all around us? And the author of Ecclesiastes is starting where all those are. Now, the difference is you and I have more than just Ecclesiastes. That's where we want to close today. Considering these realities in the first 11 verses of chapter 1 should lead us then to consider Christ. And there are several aspects I want us to consider. First of all, Jesus' work is new. And through his life, death, and resurrection, there's something that God has done that has not been done through any other means. He has solved the problem of our sin and God's need for his justice to be satisfied. And so Jesus has accomplished what no one else could. He has reconciled us in all of our mess and fallenness to the creator. Jesus' work is new. Number two, Jesus' work is remembered. Matter of fact, the first Sunday of every month, we have the Lord's Supper. You can do it gluten-free if you want. But either way, we are remembering Christ and what he has done for us. We are intentionally remembering his life, his death, his resurrection, the blood that covered our sin, and the cup that we will drink with him one day in celebration. And so his work is new, and his work is remembered. But it's not just stopping there. The good news for us is Jesus can actually make us new. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes and says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? new creation. Right? The old is gone, and, and there it's in a perfect tense, that the old is forever gone, and the new has forever come. So it's not just that Jesus did something new, but Jesus can make us new. And then here's great hope for you. You may have met some people in this room today who already forgot your name, right? You may have family members who can't remember your name because of diseases that rob them of their memories. 
But listen to what the thief asked Jesus one day. He says, when you come into your kingdom, and they were on the cross dying together, he says, when you enter into your kingdom, will you remember me? And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Here's good news for you. The world may forget you. Jesus never will. Jesus remembers those who are his. And then lastly, Jesus does reward our work. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast and movable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So under the sun, S-U-N, there's nothing new. There's nothing remembered. But in the sun, S-O-N, there is significance. And there are things that are substantial. And there are some things that will be remembered and rewarded. I'll ask Mitchell to come and we want to transition to a time of response and, and song. We'll just sing some songs of truth. But as we do that, I want to ask some questions for you. Number one, have you been seeking for meaning solely through worldly agendas or worldly accumulation or worldly applause? If you have, then we would beg you as Paul would to repent, to turn from that. There's no end in that. There's no gain in that. If we're solely seeking our meaning in the same way that those who don't know Jesus are. How satisfied are you? Have they left you completely full and full of joy? No. Have you been craving to be significant rather than treasuring the one who truly is? Would you turn from that? If you've been seeking the gain that cannot satisfy rather than seeking the God who can, would you repent from that? If you've been seeking to make a name for yourself rather than living for His, would you repent from that? And then most important question that you need to know before you walk out of this room, have you been made new in Christ? Have you repented and believed? Have you yielded your life to Christ and been made new? become a new creation in him I hope that God will use Ecclesiastes in our lives to remind us to stop trying to find value and meaning and significance in the places where they'll never be to exhaust ourselves for things that don't provide gain and to know where they are found found in Christ and then that God won't just use it in us but God will then use this word through us because man we've got some friends and neighbors and co-workers that this is where they are. And they need Jesus. He is their only hope because everything else that they're pouring through and aiming for, futile, meaningless, vain, a breath, and they can't hold it. It's real, but it's not lasting. Jesus is. Father, thank you for your word. I pray you'd help us. You know, our practice is not to skip difficult texts, but in your grace to try to go through them. And so we pray for your help as we begin this series in Ecclesiastes. And just those two requests that I've shared, not only that you would use your word in our lives, but then you would use your word through our lives. We praise you, God. You, you could have consigned us all to this futility and then perishing because we have all rebelled against you. You did not have to change this. As we acknowledge all the time, you are sovereign by right, but Savior by choice. So you've chose to rescue us from this season under the sun and the fallen world in which we live and even our own darkness and depravity. Father, I'm sorry for the times that we who know better still seem to search for the same things our friends do and in the same ways around Jesus or without Jesus. I pray that you would remind us that only in Christ is there gain. Only in Christ are there things that are lasting. And it's only in Christ that what we do is worth it and will be remembered and rewarded. We will die. That is true. Help us to live in light of that fact. Not pretend it's not going to happen. So that in the few days that we do have here, while there are some who do know our name, that in our few days, we may help them know better your name. So we pray for the grace to make this true. It's in your name we pray.
I'm going to invite you to stand as we sing some songs of truth this morning in response. Thank you.